welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is on infrastructure and has been recorded for institutional and professional investors. I'm David Lebowitz, global market strategist and host of the Center for Investment Excellence. With me today is Nick Moeller and Ashley Potter, both from our Infrastructure Investments Group. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks very much for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's go ahead and jump right in. We recently released our second annual Global Alternatives Outlook, where we challenged the various CIOs, CEOs, and strategists from our $146 billion alternatives platform to provide a 12 to 18-month outlook for their respective markets and explore their most promising investment ideas over that horizon. Just as an aside, you can access the outlook by going to www.jpmorgan.com slash altsoutlook. Today, we're going to dive in a little bit deeper on one of the sleeves in that outlook, namely core infrastructure, and I'm happy to be joined by Nick Moeller and Ashley Potter. So let's dive right in. Nick, let's start with you. You guys are core equity infrastructure investors, and one of the things that I hear as I'm out on the road with clients is that there's simply too much money chasing too few deals, valuations aren't looking attractive. So I would start by asking you, do you actually think this is the case? And what do you think the true investment opportunity set does look like at the current juncture? Sure, and thank you very much. I do think this is a very common question right now. It's one where there's some elements of truth, but I think it's become a little bit too pervasive, should we say, in terms of the narrative. What we have seen is a lot of capital raised in the space, which is really where the question comes from, but it's off a very, very low base relative to other asset classes. In addition, what I think people set aside is if you think about the amount of private capital raised versus the amount of, if you will, broader opportunity set, big public companies who invest in these same sectors, it's still relatively small. And I think the other piece of this is there was a time 15 or so years ago where you could get private equity-like returns while taking core risk exposures. Now, those days are absolutely over, but we view that as logical. There's no reason for a core asset you should be getting materially more than other traditional asset classes. And that's really where we come back to. Yes, it's got more expensive, but relatively speaking, the returns still look pretty attractive on a risk-adjusted basis. And I would say the other piece of it is where we do see some elements of truth to this is the largest transactions, what we would term large core or sometimes trophy, you do see a lot of competition, particularly from direct investors for those assets. So relatively speaking, those are less attractive. And I would say the other dynamic is just as people have looked to maintain historic return profiles, we have seen people reach higher up the risk spectrum. So again, there's elements of truth, but I do think this is overblown, particularly as people think about where equities, fixed income, and traditional real estate, for example, their return expectations in the current market environment. I think those are all great points. And one follow-on question, if I may, from more of a sectoral standpoint, where the opportunity is showing up, I think you've done a great job of illustrating where some of those valuation risks are concentrated, but how does that shake out amongst the various sectors that the team invests in? Yeah, I would broadly say it is much defined by risk profile with respect to this. We think of core assets as primarily being regulated, monopolistic, often utilities, or long-term contracted assets. So often for us, that's literally regulated utilities, water, gas, electric. On the contracted side, it's a lot of renewables, natural gas generation. 
where you perhaps see a little bit more, let's say, reaching for return at the expense of risk, and there's always shades of gray here, but it's commodity-linked assets, assets with very short-term contracts, a lot of development, particularly when it comes to the telecommunications side of things. So with respect to this, it's as much a risk profile element. And I think that's where people would say there's too much money chasing too few deals. It's really hard for me to get my private equity-like return profile anymore in renewables. Absolutely. But for a core investor, great. We love the sort of contractual profile we're getting. Excellent. Ashley, want to bring you into the conversation. So given everything that Nick just mentioned, where are you finding the most opportunities as you think about how to construct your own portfolio? I would echo Nick's sentiments. When we're looking at infrastructure debt, I think you should bear in mind that historically it's been predominantly a bank product, a private credit product. So therefore, institutions have really only come into this market, I think, over the last three to four years. So we're seeing a huge growth in the sector, and I think it recognizes the attractiveness of this sector as an asset class. I would make the point that we're also seeing, I think, a level of, kind of what we'd call yield compression or yield erosion over time. I think this is natural as we have an increasingly competitive market and as these assets, I think, are recognized in terms of the fundamentals and the core kind of credit qualities that they display. In terms of the opportunities, as I've mentioned, banks have predominantly been the traditional suppliers of capital in this market. I think we have seen them step back over the last three to four years in terms of providers of long-term finance. I think this reflects in part the changes within regulation. And I would mention BAL3 as being an example. But also I think it's a recognition of that institutions are perhaps better placed to provide longer-term capital than banks. So I think where we are seeing change and where we're seeing kind of innovation and financing structures evolve over time is banks providing shorter-term financing together with institutions coming in with longer-term tranches, which I think is definitely a positive for the market and I think provides us with a level of opportunity. I think a second area of opportunity, I mean, we are also active in the secondary market, which tends to ebb and flow, but again offers up opportunities where banks are looking to sell for various reasons and prices do not necessarily reflect, uh, I think, what we're seeing in the primary market. I mean, for example, in Q4, I think we were the beneficiaries of banks looking to readjust their risk-weighted assets and bring down those risk-weighted assets before year-end. And I think we expect those types of transactions to continue into 2020 and beyond as BAL4 is introduced. I think if we look at sectors and jurisdictions, I think there's a common thread through this outlook that you know we are in a period of change within the energy sector in particular, and we are seeing opportunities globally, I think, within the renewable sector. I think if we are looking at jurisdictions, I think we are seeing good pipeline of opportunities, for example, in Spain, where uh, across sectors. Thinking a little bit beyond those core opportunities that you've mentioned, what makes you a little bit uncomfortable? What's some of the stuff you're seeing in your market that you think investors should potentially be cautious of over the next 12 to 18 months? Well, I think when we look at core, I think we always look at the fundamentals. The assets have proven long economic lives. Assets which I think are integral to or provide kind of essential services for society, you know, whether at a local level 
regional level or national level, and really that they generate long-term stable cash flows and have significant barriers to entry. I think where we have concerns as you move away from that is whether those assets have those type of characteristics and can demonstrate, if we say, the long-term visibility in terms of cash flow profile. I mean, I would point to one sector in particular where I think over time we'll potentially have those characteristics and we all talk about internet and broadband. But at this stage, I think we're seeing it at a phase of growth where we're not able to see that visibility yet. Nick, shifting back to you, can you talk a little bit about the investment approach that you take? Yeah, absolutely. And I think certainly in the backdrop of what I described earlier in terms of the market dynamics, scale of transactions, risk profile, I think one thing that we have found to be beneficial when you can take a long-term investment perspective is something we call strategic platform investing. And what this means at a very basic level is expanding or incrementally building with what you have. If you think about it, if you have a company where you know the management, you know their approach, you know their strategy, adding additional assets to that quote-unquote platform and being integrated into that business is a lower risk way to deploy additional capital. Now, the other benefit of that is typically often these are smaller bolt-on transactions, so you're generally reducing the amount of competition versus the market, and you're just much more comfortable from a risk profile perspective. So that's certainly something we're seeing to be effective in the current market environment. It does very much require a long-term investment horizon. And in concept, it's not too different to what a listed corporation might do to incrementally expand by a merger, for example. We're just doing it on a much smaller scale. And it really does allow us to, we don't ignore them, but avoid some of those larger transactions which hit the press, which is where the narrative of too much money chasing too few deals comes from. We're at least able to pick our spots using that strategic platform investment approach. And you mentioned the press, and obviously the headlines have been driving both public and private markets pretty significantly here over the past couple of months. Another thing that continues to bubble up in the press and is commanding a lot of attention from the investors that I spend time with is ESG. So environmental, social, and governance factors, it can mean a variety of different things to different people. And again, it continues to gain momentum across the globe. So Nick, maybe sticking with you and then Ashley want to know your thoughts as well, but can you discuss the macro focus on ESG and how that aligns with infrastructure investing? Yeah, absolutely. And this is one where it is absolutely fundamental and integral to our asset class. I would first say we think of it as actually GES. You need to have control of these businesses and the appropriate governance structures to implement the E and the S. When you get to the E and the S, if you think about it for an infrastructure business, if you're violating environmental regulations, if your customers don't like you, if your regulators don't like you, it's directly associated with the returns for our businesses. So in many ways, it's often a risk reduction technique as well as return enhancement. So this is one where maybe we weren't explicitly calling it ESG over the years, but people have been and should have been doing it within our asset class for a significant amount of time. So it's something we spend a lot of time on. But again, I think we have the benefit in our asset class more from a private investing standpoint. Clearly, the dynamic on the public side is a little bit different. But when you have a little bit more control in a private business, you're really able to think about these and how it 
impacts your business plan and your risk profile going forward. Ashley, you know, Nick mentioned those two famous phrases, risk reduction and return enhancement. I think that's what every investor is going for at the end of the day, kind of staying with ESG. Can you talk a little bit about some of the opportunities that you're finding that align with ESG at the current juncture? Yes. I mean, infrastructure debt is a private credit. And as such, as Nick mentioned, kind of the governance angle, as debt providers, we don't really have that input into governance. I think our view has to be very much at the point of acquisition. And we are seeing investor demands changing, and we're looking to frame those changing investor perspectives, whereby we invest not only at a competitive rate of return, but offering kind of social value in the broadest sense. I have mentioned in generic terms that infrastructure is aligned with sustainable investing, not least because of the fundamentals of the assets themselves and the longevity in economic use. If we look at our investment space, we can diversify across water, heat, electricity, housing, hospitals, schools, social care, waste treatment, mass transportation, and so on. I think for one concrete Example of where we have changed allocations over time and recognizing the continued, if not heightened, changes within supply and demand is in renewable energy. We have seen renewable energy remove from being a relatively small sector to being core mainstream sector in the past 10 to 15 years, and it contributes directly to carbon reduction. So we've talked about valuation imbalances and too much money chasing too few deals. We've talked about where the opportunity set exists across both debt and equity. We've talked a little bit about structure and ESG and a lot of these themes that I think are going to be quite relevant for the years to come. To kind of bring it all together in conclusion, I know one of the questions that I get as I travel around and meet with you know institutional investors in particular is, okay, this is a really good story. I like what you've said. Can you talk to me about how I should think about infrastructure within the context of a more broadly diversified portfolio? So we're here at the beginning of 2020. We've obviously got 12 months of runway ahead of us. Ashley, maybe sticking with you, how should investors be thinking about infrastructure debt within the context of a diversified portfolio and any final key points that you think they should be attuned to over the coming year? Sure. I mean, when we started investing, which was back in 2012, 2013, I think we set ourselves out as a diversification strategy away from sovereign debt and corporate investment-grade fixed income debt, providing a level of illiquidity premium for similar or even better credit characteristics. Over time, I don't think this diversification strategy has weakened in any way and perhaps is even stronger in the current market, where... I think there has been change is with ESG and the fact that infrastructure debt is becoming a diversification strategy in its own right, irrespective of value add. And I think that's a key point when we think about what investors are looking for, right? A lot of these align with their interests. Nick, maybe wrapping up with you, you know, how do you think about infrastructure on the equity side within the context of a diversified portfolio? And what do you think investors should be mindful of over the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah, absolutely. This is one where if you asked an investor 10 or 15 years ago, they would have been much more focused on infrastructure equity as what I would call return enhancement or more of a private equity style approach. I would say this has significantly evolved sort of to the earlier discussion on too much money chasing too few deals, how the markets evolved. 
really what we see today when we talk to investors is what we summarize as DIY as their objectives, diversification, inflation protection, and yield. So if we think about those objectives in the backdrop of a broader portfolio, David, you're certainly more of the expert than me, but if we think about traditional equities, traditional fixed income, there are certainly challenges with return expectations for a traditional 60-40 portfolio, challenges on the yield side. The major reason we are seeing so much capital move into the asset class is relative value, almost to the point earlier. We do see it as being attractive, and we are seeing many investors sort of start to view this as a standard part of asset allocation in the same way private real estate evolved. What I would say is very important and implicit to my DIY assumption is a core risk profile for the assets. I think what people should be wary of is we are seeing people call something core But under the hood, whether it's by geography, perhaps doing a little bit more emerging market, development, commodity risk, we're seeing a little bit more risk profile creep into certain assets that may not have those sort of DIY characteristics when the next downturn comes. So the definition of core is a little bit in the eye of the beholder right now, but that's just something I would say to investors to keep your eye on as they look at the market moving forward. And you know, at this point in the cycle, I think the overarching theme of knowing what you own is of the utmost importance. And obviously, it wouldn't be a financial podcast without an acronym to wrap things up. But I think DIY really does summarize what investors are looking for and what some of these asset classes are able to provide. So with that, Nick, Ashley, I want to thank you both so much for joining me on the Center for Investment Excellence today. Thanks very much. Really appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan's Center for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes wherever you listen to podcasts and on our website. Recorded on January 15th, 2020. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the JP Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. This document is a general communication being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature or other purpose in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, If any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals, investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only. 
based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. JP Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of JP Morgan Chase and & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by JP. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United Kingdom by JP Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions by JP Morgan Asset Management Europe S, A Grave RL. In Hong Kong by JP Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or JP Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited. In Singapore by JP Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, Number 197,601,586K. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. In Taiwan by JP Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited. In Japan by JP Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm. Number 330. In Australia to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001. CTH by JP Morgan Asset Management. Australia. Limited. ABN 55143832080. AFSL 376919. In Brazil by Banco JP. Morgan SA. In Canada for institutional clients use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., and in the United States by J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Inc., member of FINRA, J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management, Inc. In APIC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan and Singapore, for all other markets in APIC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.